Welcome to the next episode of our podcast on negotiation. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Valérie Rousseau, who is a professor at, uh, at Catholic University of Louvain uh, and scientific, sci scientific director of Belgian Fund, no, research director of Belgian Fund for Scientific uh, Research. Yes, that's, I hope yeah, I got it right. It. Yes. And teaches negotiation. And our topic will be reconciliation. My name is Remy Smolinski, and welcome to the podcast of on negotiation. Valerie, great to have you with us. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, why don't thank you, you for having me? <laughs> why don't you say a few words about uh, about yourself, Valerie? All right. Um, so, as you said, I am based uh, at the University of Louvain, FNRS, where a lot of freedom in my research, since I can teach, but I'm not obliged to teach, and. Uh, Therefore, uh, I chose to teach international negotiation, which is really kind of a passion. And I also teach in Louvain um, transitional justice, and I and I try to 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 create bridges between the two fields. So the field of post-war uh, context, transitional justice, post-mass atrocities situation settings, and this question of negotiation: How do we negotiate reconciliation if we can? That's a little bit. The starting point. And uh, speaking of starting point, um, um, it, it's always good to start in an academic context. At least, it's always always good to start with a uh, with a definition. So I guess we all have a feeling of what uh, reconciliation is. Yeah. But if you were to um, if you were to put it uh, if you were to dress it with uh, you know, with uh, with your nice words, yeah, how would you define uh, reconciliation? And uh, could you give us a few uh, examples um, uh, from uh, from historical examples where Work really, really well, and maybe where it didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if I may, I think that I, I could uh, even start with a, a, a kind of a research posture and almost a kind of dilemma that I had myself as a scholar. Um, uh, so I, I was uh, in, sent to the Great Lakes in Africa, Rwanda, especially uh, 20 years of, I mean ago. So right after the genocide, even 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 earlier. And um, I was really struck by a kind of paradox in the field. That was that on the one hand, when I was uh, meeting uh, with uh, policymakers in Belgium or in Kigali or practitioners, NGO workers, or also scholars in, in my field, to them, reconciliation, reconciliation was really an obvious goal. I mean, it was like kind of evident objective, right? And on the other hand, most victims who I met with uh, felt literally bitter towards the notion. And so my, my, my question was, okay, what can I do? What shall I do with these two attitudes? So the same phenomenon is seen as obvious for, for the ones and, and, and indecent for the others. And so initially, the, the posture that I adopted was really the, the easiest one. I decided not to actually not to mention reconciliation in my research, even though I was working on it. But I talked about the Franco-German rapprochement, the Franco-Algerian you know, relationship, but I tried to avoid the notion because I was not at ease. Then I got a call from William Jartman to tell me, okay, could you write a chapter for the conflict, the what, uh, conflict resolution handbook wrote later? I don't remember even the, oh, Sage, I, I don't even remember what, anyway, my mission was to write a chapter on reconciliation. I could not escape anymore. 
And uh, yeah, but that's, that was really interesting because then I, I, while I was doing this research, I realized how complex it was, how useful this umbrella and fuzzy concept was as well, and, and the scope and the limits of it. So um, that's a little bit the, the, the starting point, I, was, I would say. But otherwise, if you ask me what it is or what are we talking about when we talk about reconciliation, there is no consensus in the literature or in the practice uh, for some, the core element of reconciliation is trust, and it makes sense. For others, it is truth. It also makes sense. And other, another group focus really focuses on uh, an identity change. And so the point is really to, to differentiate the potential meanings and to be aware that some people talk about it from this perspective to other people who talk about that from another perspective and there you have misunder big misunderstandings. I don't want to be too long, but I, I can explain more if you want. <laughs> yes, I, I found uh, when I was uh, reading a little bit in preparation for uh, for uh, for um, uh, for a talk, uh, yeah. I read a little bit about uh, reconciliation as a process of uh, mutual accommodation. Right? Mutual accommodation meaning, hey, uh, you are different, I am different, I have a different vision of um, what is truth. Yeah. I have my own feelings, which might be uh, uh, might be hurt, right? So, and you yeah. might have your own, right? So, and, but to coexist, to live peacefully, uh, to live peacefully in a particular setting, you know, be it a I don't know a shared flat or yeah. or a territory, right? So, uh, we make a step towards each other. Yeah? That's uh, that's kind of a definition which I. Uh, um, uh, which kind of, kind of kind of liked, but I also disliked it at the same time. Yes, so what is uh, the, I liked it because you know, um, what does accommodation mean? You know, yeah. helping yeah. each other, you know, um, making adjustments, making the change, right? But at the same time, at the same time, I was thinking, um, but does it mean that uh, we accept that we are less right than we had thought? So what are your thoughts on uh, reconciliation mm -hmm. as a sort of a mutual accommodation, accommodation. or a mutual adjustment change mm -hmm. process? Yeah, I, I fully understand your, your point, Remy. And, and personally, I, I would be inclined to, to be a bit like you on the, on the continuum. So maybe we can consider a kind of continuum between a maximalist approach and a minimalist approach. And what you explained, if I'm not wrong, uh, what I heard is really that if you consider uh, reconciliation as a, a process of mutual accommodation, it's almost a synonymous of reconciliation as a, a synonymous of conflict management. Basically, we coexist. Okay, we still have a kind of hatred, but we are not going to kill you anymore, uh, vice versa, because it's not in our interest. And that's it. You have your view, right? So very minimalist approach, but which is already remarkable after a mass atrocity, you know. Even, uh, history. However, if we go on the other side of the continuum, we have a maximalist approach. I, I hope you, you are following my kind of blackboard here, an imaginary <laughs> blackboard. Uh, but, um, and here, reconciliation is seen as a transcendent process, kind of, you know, far beyond this accommodation and coexistence, because the argument of these maximalist voices, I'm, I'm not one of them, but I do respect them, but their argument is really that the coexistence stuff, right? The, the accommodation perspective is too explosive. I mean, it's not enough in order to prevent the reoccurrence of violence. And so they mm -hmm. push a little bit 
further. Um, why is it interesting to see this continuum? Because my point is not to say these are wrong and these and we are right, for instance. That's really not my, my I don't have normative, I, I hope not, not to have a normative approach like this, but at least that we as scholars or as practitioners in different times of my life, we have to be aware of the position that we adopt. Where are we on this continuum? Because it implies a particular kind of objective for the association, for you know, the people you work with and so on. And also it implies different kind of expectations um, towards the victims. If you accept that people still, I mean, simply need to coexist, which is already difficult, you let them with their memories, okay? You let them with their visions. If you want to go to rec a reconciliation, which means a kind of harmony, right? Uh, uh, tr full trust, full forgiveness, full justice, and a kind of uh, miracle, uh, you need to have people working on their memories and, 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 and sharing one vision, which is not only challenging, but might be violent. You see mm. what I mean? Yes, but is it, um, uh, Valerie, um, um, I like this vision a lot. Uh, is it achievable within a particular generation or is it, um, do we need uh, more time uh, for it to kick in? You know, it's, in, in other words, is it possible to change, you know, these hurt feelings yeah, uh, towards, uh, towards the other side yeah, who is utterly, utterly obviously, utterly wrong, who did, who did us harm yeah, within the same generation? Or do we need, you know, offsprings who just, you know, have to see that, hey, we had difficulties in the past, but uh, let's start uh, on, a, on, a, on a clean slate. Let's start yeah. uh, this relationship anew. What's your feeling? What is your experience of, uh, of reconciliation processes? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are already, uh, I would say, at the core of the, the topic, actually, with this question. Thank you for being so right, right to, to the point. Um, this is really the, the most important variable for me, timing. Timing. I mean, and this is very, very difficult to deal with that from a practice perspective. Uh, to me, after a war, we don't count in years, but in generations, mm. which is absolutely terrible in terms of concrete management because NGOs, for instance, they have a, a when everything is very good, a three years contract, right? Uh, for policymakers, they think in terms of, you know, an, an election time, you know, maybe five years maximum. So they need to pack everything, you know, to deliver something. Uh, and, and, and well, even the Franco-German case, which is to me one of the most Remarkable one, which is not a fairy tale either, right? I'm not uh, <laughs> euphoric, but I'm not cynical either. So I can see some remarkable uh, achievements. Even in this case, uh, in my personal family, it took two generations. But it happened. I mean, a change did happen. And, and so my grandfather, for, for different reasons, uh, too long to explain, couldn't stand the idea that a German tourist, because he was selling ice creams in a provincial town, he could not stand the idea that a German tourist could come to serve him, so he would disappear slowly with respect, but he was not able to, to deal with that. Two generations, I didn't know when I was a, a teenager that I would work on that. So, so I mean, in a, in a normal family, not specifically political, you know, 
uh, two generations afterwards, my first boyfriend was, of course, a German one. <laughs> you see what I mean? So it happened. And it, I'm not mm -hmm. the only one. I mean, it, for, for an entire um, continent almost, two generations were uh, necessary. But this case had all the uh, required uh, conditions, um, you know, which is extremely rare. Maybe we'll go to the conditions afterwards. But yes, absolutely. So let's, uh, since you've mentioned them uh, already, yes, uh, what are the preconditions for a successful uh, uh, reconciliation process? Uh, um, uh, yeah, I don't pretend that I'm complete and, com and, and exhaustive here, right? Because it's quite spontaneous. But I would see at least uh, maybe four conditions that to me are critical and, and the order might be different according to each context. But um, the first thing to me is um, the context. So from a very realist perspective, um, changes of emotions, representations, uh, and beliefs are so, de so demanding for people that people get involved in that only if they see, they feel, they perceive that the change is vital, indispensable in their direct interest. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so if I take a concrete example in the Franco-German case, I mean, it was not a kind of uh, a moral, uh, purely altruistic, you know, rapprochement. Sure. The, people present it this way, but no. For the first time uh, in France and in Germany, the enemy was not the other side anymore. I mean, was not on the other side of the Rhine, if you want. Right. They had a common new enemy, much more dangerous, USSR. Okay. So mm -hmm. first, the context, the necessity to move on with the other. Um, uh, second, I think that leadership is critical here. Um, I don't pretend that people can make the difference. I mean, if they are alone without any kind of contextual variable, but the fact that the Golan Adenauer or Mandela and Tutu and these kind of leaders, they were not perfect, but legitimate and credible in the eyes of all parties. Mm -hmm. So this is critical. So context, people in the sense uh, of uh, leadership. I would also maybe mention in order to have a, a, dura a sustainable process, knowing that it takes a long time, it's important, this sustainability, I'd say that robust institutions Jean Monnet said once, uh, nothing lasts without institutions. So nothing changes without people, fine, but nothing lasts without institutions. And so robust in institutions to, you know, to, to trigger a, a real change at all levels of society, you need you know, a place that doesn't depend only on the goal that they now to two and Mandela, a place that will say like the European Union, mm -hmm. if you want. Yes. And the last element, but we already touched upon it, is to me timing. So the fact that people don't start, or don't, don't, don't try to start a process at any time. So it could be too early, right? If three mm -hmm. months after the genocide, some Belgian NGO workers or, or Belgian prime minister arrives in Kigali and say, you should reconcile now. I mean, it's nonsense. Mm -hmm. So not at any time and not at any pace. Very mm -hmm. long process. Thank you, Valerie. This ties in into a question that we've received uh, in our chat. Uh, Umit is asking, 
Good to see you, Professor. <laughs> Can you give us some details about reconciliation efforts for the protracted conflicts such as Turks and Armenians? So do, the, do these, uh, probably we would probably have to go through all of these uh, success factors and analyze it in the context of, uh, of an ongoing conflict, but uh, is timing the most important one in terms of, uh, in, in, in terms of this? Maybe leadership and institutions in that sense? So well, we can go, it, it would be very quick to go through the list. Let's, yeah. let's make the exercise together because I didn't prepare the question, so it might be tricky. As far as I know, even though I'm not a specialist, but this case is really kind of emblematic case. So I read a lot, but I never really made a kind of specific field, uh, field work. However, the context, is reconciliation on the agenda for political reasons? I would say not really, <laughs> unfortunately, for people who depend on that to, to, to unfold. But I think that if it was the case, it would have been done, I mean, a long time ago. So there are people, I don't know whether it's on both sides, but at least on one side, who benefit from the non-reconciliatory you know, situation or who, anyway. So to me, it's not on the agenda until the all, all sides feel that they are in a kind of Mutual, uh, mutually hurting stalemate. To come back to the to this the concept of Zatman in the negotiation, I would I think it's it's still relevant in the reconciliation process. Regarding leadership, do we have leaders on both sides who are legitimate and credible in the eyes of everybody? I'm not sure. Not at all so far. Um, uh, institutions that there is no institution they try to negotiate but it's too too early right but it's normal i mean it's it, it comes afterwards and the question of timing um that's that's terrible because if we consider that it's been a century now more than a century actually uh, since the event um what is terrible why do i use this uh, this um word terrible because when i meet some friends here um from Armenian, you know, affiliation, I have the feeling that it was yesterday. In terms of emotions, everything is so intense, intact. And so the lesson that I would draw up or emphasize from this case, I don't know whether it resonates with the, 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 the gentleman who raised the question, uh, is um, that denial, official denial, can has a kind of um, freezing effect on everything. So one century, the, the fact that so much, uh, so many years passed doesn't change anything in terms of emotions are still burning, explosive. I mean, uh, it's not only uh, active wounds, it's f uh, festering wounds. Mm -hmm. It superates, terrible. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Valerie, for answering this spontaneous question. Um, when we put it into perspective, right, uh, in terms of um, in terms of the sequence of events, right, yeah. uh, we know uh, uh, from our European uh, past, painful past, you know, there was a one conflict, uh, festering wounds, another conflict, then uh, a negotiate, well, end of the conflict, negotiation, and a painful, long, painful uh, reconciliation process with leaders, with institutions, and so on. Yeah? Um, is that the uh, normative sequence of events, uh, which means can reconciliation only start once we've negotiated or mediated a 
an alignment of preferences or peace, peace treaty or whatever uh, whatever else yeah or does re can re can or should reconciliation start sooner and be a prerequisite for a successful negotiation yeah what is the what is the is there a, is there a do you have a feeling on the, on the, the the right or normative sequence of events in that case yeah the, um, this is you have great questions <laughs> thank you Ravi. uh be, because it it allows really to go to the core of the the issue uh, of the topic um i would say i, I would not personally adopt a normative approach saying that okay in all cases it should be like this because it, it would be a kind of checklist approach which is what policymakers expect and demand sometimes the uh, i was invited in, in rwanda by a minister and he said but ah, don't say all the time that it has to be nuanced and so give me a clear you know checklist of what should we do it's not going to work you know from the franco-german case to the rwandan case i cannot give you a checklist I can, you will be happy for five minutes, but no, it won't work and it will hurt. It will harm. Anyway, so um, I wouldn't say that it's, uh, let's say, a kind of uh, reconciliation could be seen either as a precondition to a, a fruitful um, negotiation process in the long run, or that, that reconciliation comes afterwards as a kind of outcome of a long negotiation process. So what comes first? I would say it's not the one or the other, either or. Um, it can be both. So we have cases, I remember I, I edited a book with Mark Anste. I don't know whether he is with us today, but if he's there, I would like to quote him. Um, is important to me. Uh, so Mark is a practitioner, a South African practitioner involved in the, the, the transition in, in South Africa. And uh, we had this discussion together because my point was, Mark, it's impossible to have reconciliation as a kind of precondition pre pre because my argument is that it takes generations, right? And he said, but Valerie, in South Africa, it was the case. Without this reconciliatory intent, I mean, they would not have been able to, to imagine this negotiation process. So the conclusion was, okay, according to the leadership, the context, you know, the sensibilities, the culture can be, can be a precondition or a, a, a kind of, I would say, horizon. To me, it's not even yeah, an yeah. outcome. It's a process with a kind of, in French, I would say, a cap. You have a a horizon in, in sight, right? And you take mm -hmm. this direction because outcome, it's, it's, it's a never ending process. To me, it's never irreversible, even between France and Germany. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for an, uh, uh, answering this, uh, Valerie, uh, very insightful. Um, Dr. Schiff, Amira Schiff is asking a question about culture. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so thank you for, an, uh, for the interesting uh, talk. You are very welcome. Thank you for being <laughs> with us. Uh, what about cultural dimension in the reconciliation? For instance, do some cultures, religions uh, have uh, never forgiveness or um, have it easier to forgive or uh, less easier to forgive than others? Mm -hmm. What's your view on culture, um, on culture as a dimension or factor in the reconciliation processes, Valerie? It's, it's a superb question, a very complex one. Uh, thank you for, for raising it. I would say, once again, culture is another fuzzy concept, okay? What do we talk about when we talk about culture? Wow, it's another, you, you need a, a series of talks on that. But if I try to summarize my thoughts, I would say that 
if you take um, the religious part of culture, which was included in the question, I would say, yes, there are big major differences according to, to the cultures. And for instance, the use of forgiveness in, in the reconciliation mantra from a maximalist perspective, I don't know whether uh, uh, the audience was there when I did that, but the maximalist perspective, um, some voices counter-argued in saying, well, stop with this forgiveness, which is so Christian, you know, in, in, in substance, it doesn't make sense for us. Um, however, uh, yeah, okay, so I, I, I would say that there are um, processes that go beyond culture. And just before the talk, we were dis uh, talking, uh, Remy and myself, uh, preceding a little bit the, the discussion. And I said to me, um, there are commonalities beyond cultures. One of them is that in all the cases that I worked on so far, that I've been working on so far, I noticed the importance of the existence of a humiliation feeling somewhere. Mm -hmm. And in all the cases, all the cases, and it triggers for generations sometimes, um, yeah, toxic vibrations. We, we, this, this, it was the, the concept that we developed together. Anyway, and I would maybe go further than the religious part of culture to once to address the question and say, the most important point to me regarding culture is memory, which is different. Uh, if we consider social memory or uh, collective memory, call it as or nas national memory, call it. Uh, like you, uh, uh, whatever, I mean, um, as you want. I, to me, this big uh, weight of the past is a major dimension uh, to prevent, to prevent a, a, a kind of healthy reconciliation process or easy, but there are no, there, there, there is no easy uh, reconciliation process after mass atrocities anyway. But it's an important uh, uh, dimension mm -hmm. for sure. There is a literature on this, and I could I could send to Remy some papers on this for the for the person for sharing with the audience. Yes, uh, thank you so much for answering this one for taking this one. Um, <clears throat> you've mentioned uh, you've mentioned the intensity to which uh, uh, with which the topic of reconciliation has been uh, dealt with in in science. Um, uh, we also exchanged some thoughts on it uh, right before we went on air. And uh, there's so much attention devoted to negotiation, mediation, you know, ways of uh, resolving or managing conflicts. Yeah, uh, there is some literature on reconciliation, but it's a it's a it's, it's a minute uh, share with as as compared to the to to, to the other uh, to the other parts. Yeah, why do we so much focus on on resolving conflict, and we tend tend to believe that uh, that once we got to an agreement, it's all over, mission completed. We can tap ourselves on the shoulders. Hey, we are such great negotiators without, um, or maybe, and do not care so much about, you know, the feelings that have been hurt, uh, damaged, the uh, humiliation that you mentioned, mm -hmm. right? That was uh, uh, felt or caused, yeah? Um, why, is, uh, why are we so much focusing on the process towards the agreement, resolution, and forget or do not focus so much on what follows afterwards. Mm -hmm. Well, in my own research, the feeling I have is that we need reconciliation for us. 
for instance, I take a concrete case as a Belgian scholar, as a Belgian citizen. I mean, it's so, it would be so wonderful to know that in Rwanda, they turn the page and everything is fine be because we are involved in that mm. okay, as third parties. And, and so um, I don't mean that all the person who try to favor reconciliation efforts in, in the field are, you know, uh, in, in bad faith. So, so uh, it, it's extremely, it's, it's, uh, I'm full of admiration to, towards them. But what I mean is that if we arrive with a kind of expectation, which is like Hillary Clinton, uh, I mean, she emphasized a lot the idea that, okay, we are going to work with people everywhere she went to. Uh, in Congo, she said that in, in, in Asia as well. She said, I, I summarize a little bit her idea. The people we need, okay, are people who look for what? Because otherwise we're not going to, to reach the goal that we that we have. And I fully understand that backward looking is probably not a great attitude. However, saying we need good victims, right? Resilient victims, forgiving victims, forward-looking victims. Oh, when you talk to people in the field, you know what they say. We already live with them. I remember one, one Rwandan woman, she said that to me. We already, oh, I already, because she was left alone practically uh, in her village, and she said, I already lived, live with them. Don't ask me more. Don't ask me too much. Mm. And I and I also remember someone else. Uh, she was a, a Colum she is a, a Colombian uh, survivor, so completely different. I was in Paris interviewing her, and we were talking about a bit like about these these topics. And she suddenly she stopped and she said to me, um, "Don't touch upon my hatred. That's all I have. They took all I had." Okay, mm. and. That was a turning point in my research. Because if you take a look at the conflict resolution dictionaries or handbooks or, you know, academic or whatever, uh, courses, um, hatred is always a kind of negative emotion compared to forgiveness, reconciliation, positive aspects. I mean, I don't buy this anymore. Emotions are ambivalent, neither to me, I might be wrong, of course, neither Positive, not negative, they are. People feel hatred. Okay, let's do work with the people the way they are. Full of hatred, which is quite legitimate after what they've been you know, through. And uh, if we arrive with the idea that you should reconcile now and you know, quickly, to me it's an additional, a terrible additional violence. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Valerie. Uh, we have another one uh, which is uh, also refers to um, uh, to an overt conflict um, um, at the EU borders, um, Ukraine and Russia, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, where should they start? By we stopping war, probably, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. But to me, reconciliation is not on the agenda. It's, it, there is nothing to talk about now. In maybe another anecdote. One month or even before that, after the, uh, the starting of the war, I've been contacted by a Norwegian colleague and a Belgian friend in Brussels, and both wanted to organize, it, it pure coincidence, kind of concert in Norway and in Brussels, different settings, with the same ideas. Let's demonstrate that they can reconcile 
And we are going to find Ukrainian and Russian um, uh, musicians in an orchestra, and we will, you know, all the benefits of the of the concert would go to I don't know, uh, uh, generosity uh, associations and so on. And I said, guys, you are doing that for you. I mean, who really wants among the at least the Ukrainian musicians around you who really feel that they need to be in an orchestra right now to play with a big smile, you know, uh, something from Mozart or Handel. I, I thought, this is for us. Do, do, do you do that for them or for us? That was really, to me, simply not the right question. I don't mean that there is nothing to do now to prepare a reconciliation process or a kind of rapprochement. And there are niches, so Russian dissidents brought are in contact with Ukrainians. There are niches of kind of visionary people who already, you know, think and, and see beyond the conflict, but it's extremely rare. And I would not like to blame the people who don't want to think about that. You see, you just stop. I mean, I, I don't care about a rapprochement now. I want justice. Mm -hmm. I want to see where the bodies of my, you know, of my friends are. Right. Yes, um, so the answer is, um, uh, um, who are we doing it for, right? And what are the priorities of those involved? Uh, what are versus ours? Um, and let's take care about, uh, about the victims, uh, those involved first, uh, uh, before we start doing it for, uh, start doing something for ourselves. Uh, yeah, because otherwise there is a temptation to do something which is very gratifying. And it might be a temptation for mediators to play the gratifying role, actually the hero that saves every... I don't mean that there is no heroes like that, uh, but it, it might be highly problematic if the price to pay to adopt this posture yes. is paid by, you know, by, by the, the people in the field. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Valerie, thank you so much for sharing this. Uh, my last question is always uh, about uh, the great negotiators. Yeah? So uh, knowing what you've, uh, uh, what you've shared and much more about uh, reconciliation, conflict management and negotiation, who are your um, role models, contemporary, uh, historical, uh, who are great negotiators uh, that, um, uh, that you would pick uh, mm -hmm. in, our, uh, in our chat? Uh, at least one. It's not very original, but anyway, that, that, that's authentic. That's my answer. Uh, I think that Charles de Gaulle did a great job, actually. He has a lot of shortcomings. He, he, he was not per perfect, for sure. But what is, what is really impressive in, in this guy to me is a kind of pragmatic pragmatic character, which is like Cadet called, a textbook case. And if you take a look at what he wrote regarding the Franco-German relations uh, from World War I to the end of World War II, it was very harsh. I mean, he was mentioning kind of uh, ontological incompatibility between the two people, you know, a kind of um, a her a her hereditary enemy. I mean, very, very hard uh, vocabulary. And the same Charles de Gaulle, at the end of the 50s, wrote in, in his letters, books, and speeches, uh, uh, the natural cooperation between the two people and the, what, what's the name? The um, deep affinity that has always attracted both sides. Was it only a kind of, you know, opportunistic guy? No, I don't think so. But he was, you know, smart, smart enough to understand that there was no other option than, I mean, 
dramatically changed the, the, the view and he, what they did in terms of negotiation with uh, Adenauer for the Traité de l'Elysée, it's uh, 1962, like sorry, in January, is impressive because uh, their negotiation process um, dealt with official levels. Still now, ministers from different, uh, I mean, uh, departments have to sit down and negotiate every two or the month. It's still in action now. But it was not only official, it was also the establishment of the Franco-German uh, Youth Office, OFAGE. And this office um, uh, allowed more than 8 million, 8, 8 million student exchange programs. So very, you know, civil society level. And both, that's quite rare. I cannot be long, but I would have many other arguments to tell you that this guy really made a complete shift in terms of a kind of conversion. Mm -hmm. We're very fortunate in Europe to have uh, lots of uh, role models as, uh, for great negotiators. Val Valerie, thank you so much for your time. It's been great having you. And for the audience, I must, I must, uh, I must confess, uh, very rarely uh, have I dealt with uh, so wise and modest and humble individuals as you, Valerie, uh, Valerie are. So, oh, so thank you, you much. Thank you very much with your, uh, <laughs> with your wisdom. Uh, uh, and to the audience, thank you so much for your questions. Uh, enjoyed it a lot. Uh, uh, and until, um, until next time, all the best in your negotiations. Thank you, Valerie. Ciao. Ciao. See you soon. <laughs>